Hello, Gap Year Universe. I'm Julia Rogers. And I'm Margot Brookfield. Welcome to Gap Year Radio, the show that brings you information and inspiration to plan a life-changing Gap Year adventure. So Margot, we are diverting from our usual format of inviting a Gap Year expert or a Gap Year alum to the show because tomorrow is kind of a big day and we wanted to provide some some opportunity for education and processing. <laughs> yes, it, it's certainly a big week, um, a big month, you know, just with all that's going on and um, a really important time to be bringing this conversation to the forefront, I think. So basically, we wanted to offer you listeners an opportunity to understand that no matter how the election shakes out, our country still has a lot of work to do and that young people are a big part of that work. And the work that I'm talking about is social and racial justice. So the guests that we brought on the show, Brianna Wallace and Autumn Gupta, are these incredible young women who created a resource called Justice in June. Margot, do you want to tell people a little bit about Justice in June? Sure, absolutely. So yes, these these are two very inspiring women. Um, And they created Justice in June over the summer as a way to help people become better allies to the Black community. So the website started off as a Google Doc offering people readings and other media. This entire effort is rooted in the idea that the more educated people become, the more active they will become. Um, And a really great just resource pooling for, for folks that were looking to get more involved in this movement. Definitely. And we also talk a little bit about, well, we talk about the origin story of Justice in June and how this came to be, but we also talk a lot about what what does it mean to stay active in your education and activism after the election? And also what self-care and what things can we do to be kind to ourselves during the stressful time? So we we, our conversation is very wide ranging, but I think that it'll be very useful to anybody who is feeling a little bit of uh, tension as we enter this week. Yes, absolutely. And hopefully, some, you know, action items. I think if people haven't heard of Justice in June thus far, it's a really great place to, you know, start, continue your work within this movement. And, um, you know, if you're looking for action steps after the election, I think that's definitely a great resource to, to bring to the forefront. Brie and Autumn mentioned explicitly that they created this resource to help people start from wherever they're at. And I think that's one of the wonderful things is that there's no wrong place to start this work. It's you can, you know, whether you already consider yourself deeply rooted in, in activism around this issue or whether you're just kind of coming to your education now, there's no wrong way to start. Absolutely. Well, I am so glad that you were able to chat with them, Julia, and let's get started. And don't forget to vote. Brianna and Autumn, thank you so much for being here today. I am really excited for this conversation. So, you know, we brought you on today, not just to tell us about Justice in June, which we are going to talk about, but also to have a conversation about how to sustain racial justice education and action after the election. But I really want to start at the very beginning. So, Brianna, can you take us through the origin story of Justice in June and how you guys got started in this work? Well, first off, thank you so much for having us. We are really excited to just dive in. And Justice in June started with a conversation. It was catalyzed by the murder of George Floyd. And before then, you know, I had seen instances of police brutality and injustice and had kind of become desensitized to it. And this just hit differently. I think we watched eight minutes and 46 seconds as a life was extinguished 
and everything that possibly could have been executed to avoid it wasn't. And I became very internally distressed by it and I saw a lot of silence and I chose to create a video that I put out onto my social media and I was just really frank and I said this is what it looks like for someone that whether you're following me because you care about me, love me, admire me, respect me, someone you know tangibly how it's affecting them. And I talked about my brother and my dad who are black men and how hurtful it was to see something like that and then imagine what could happen to them simply because of the color of their skin. There's going to be people who only see them for that. And Autumn at the time was not on social media. Uh, So I had sent it to my parents and I had sent it to her. And then she reached out and she was like, wow, you know, let's just have a call. Let's just dive into this. I just want to um, talk through this and see, you know, even if I can't do anything, can I just listen? And we set up a call the next day on a Saturday and I just explained, you know, all the emotions I was going through and how difficult it was to see these things and then not see retribution and to see people not acting and not, um, you know, choosing to say something about what was going on when it was very clear, you know, what was taking place. Yeah. And just, I remember when she sent me that video, because obviously I'd seen it in the news, everyone had seen George Floyd's murder in the news, but um, it wasn't until Bree sent me that video that I thought about, oh wow, I need to maybe check in on some of my friends. And so there's one line she says towards the end um, where she says, if I was the one who was killed, what would you be doing right now? Would you be doing anything different than your normal daily breakfast update and the Snapchat of your pets? Or would you be participating in a protest, using your platform to speak out and and trying to enact change if I was the one who had been killed. And Bree is one of my best friends, so of course I was like, wow, that was really convicting. I would be doing everything different. My life would have completely changed because I would have lost this person that's so important to me. And And in that moment, that's when I reached out to her and she referenced that call we had. And it was, we talked for two and a half hours on a Saturday night and it was a lot of me just listening, um, because I knew that there was nothing I could do to change the way she was feeling or um, or prevent how how sad and how just withdrawn she was. But I knew that I could offer support. I could offer to say, hey, um, I'll try to share this burden. I'll sit with you in that dark place and I'll be there. Even though I personally cannot understand what your community is going through, I will still try to bear this burden with you. And out of that, I really don't like just sitting in feelings. I'm a very um, action-oriented person and goal-oriented. And I had recognized, too, that even for myself, being a woman of color, I didn't recognize, you know, 70% of the resources being circulated around, hey, this is why um, this death caused such a reaction. And this is not an isolated incident. Here's all this work done by people in these fields showing that there is very much a systemic racism problem in America. And that was really convicting for me as well because I consider myself pretty educated. I like to be informed and I don't want to be part of a problem. I want to be part of solutions. So 
being very type A, I was like, cool, we're going to spend the next month, the month of June, just trying to educate ourselves and learn a little bit more on the history and the factors contributing to this so that I can then start taking further action and be part of that solution instead of just complicit as part of the problem. And I texted Bree on Sunday then saying, hey, I'm thinking of making like a 30-day uh, plan with different times of how I can engage. So I could spend 10 minutes each day watching a, po watching a podcast, listening to a podcast, watching a video, reading an article, or maybe I want to read a book, so I'll spend 25 minutes doing that, or then there's a couple other bigger volumes, and that could be 45 minutes a day. And I asked her, like, this is not your job, but would you lend your perspective and insight as a person within the black community to review this document I'm creating? And of course, being the wonderful, gracious person she is, she said she would do that. And so collaboratively then, I pulled some of the resources and just organized them into a 30-day spread. And then Brie looked over it to make sure that it did the certain resources align with the movement of Black Lives Matter and with progressing it forward, not just um, what I thought it was useful to learn, but what was actually useful to learn and would help me get to a better place of supporting her. And yeah, and Brie, you want to explain what happened next? Yeah, so for me, this was a way to direct people. Very much for Autumn, it was going to be a learning piece, something that she could share, you know, with her family, with her friends in rural Missouri, and something for me, like Autumn mentioned, right, it's not the job or responsibility of those within the Black community to take on the additional burden of educating everyone else. But there were a lot of questions of what can I do, how can I be better, and I am a compassionate person and I understood where some of that was coming from. So this was a way to say, here's a place to start. Here's somewhere where you can commit to a month and you can spend 10, 25 or 45 minutes a day, depending on whatever your lifestyle looks like to get educated. And so I shared it on my social media platform. And at the time, Autumn, like I said, wasn't uh, at, very active on Facebook, uh, had deleted her Instagram. So I shared it there as well. And it just started to pick up. And my sister's in college and she was like, hey, can I share this with my coalition of leaders? And, you know, uh, a few people, including her, had reached out and said, you know, can we share it on Twitter? Who do we tag? Neither of us had Twitter. So I, I texted Autumn and was like, hey, people are asking if like they can share it to Twitter. And she was like, let's just make one. So we made a joint account. We shared it there. And the first day, you know, we got like 32 likes and 31 um, reshares. We're like, great, that's wonderful. And then the next day, a friend of mine, her friend had a pretty large following and said, hey, would he, he would love to share it. Would you mind? Because a lot of people at this time were asking permission. And we're like, absolutely. And then it just kind of took off from there. It um, essentially went viral on Twitter and we had 1.1 million impressions within that week. And over 175,000 people had accessed the document because this started out as a Google Doc, which we realized, wow, we did not create to take this bandwidth which is of course a great problem to yeah. have <laughs> so you know eventually we created it um as a website um as you know we looked and saw how many people responded like wow this was what i needed i was so overwhelmed by all the resources being thrown at me 20 different books i can read but this is a tangible way for me to create a habit and to craft it into a lifestyle 
Yeah, I mean, it's so it's such an impressive um, and graceful way that this came about being created. I remember that one of the things that was the first to come across my radar was the thing that you linked to on the website, which is the 75 things white people can do for racial justice. Um, And I I had shared that out to my community um, before I discovered you guys. But I thought that one of the things that was really um, important in this in this moment and i think that one of the reasons why this uh period of time has been different than than previous periods of time is that um we often white people often hear that it's important for us to do the work but sometimes that we don't know what that means or previously you know that that has been harder to understand what that means we know that work needs to be done but what is that work um and that document the 75 things white people can do was one of the first um lists that i saw where i was like i understand this I can take actionable steps from this list. I now understand truly what the work is. Um, in that, and this is coming from a perspective of someone who considers themselves previously engaged in anti-racism education and work, but still wasn't fully understanding the scope of what needed to be done. And also, um, I think, honestly, the scope of the pain that has been um you know, circulating in, in the black community for obviously a very long time. So it's I think that what you guys have created um, is so accessible and, and just amazing. So congratulations. <laughs> um, how like how have you guys um, how are you continuing to manage this resource? Like now that I mean, obviously, we, we want to make sure that that these this education, these efforts sustain. Um, what have you guys noticed about the platform itself and how people are reaching out to you? Has it has it dimmed at all or is it still kind of on the upswing? Yeah. So what has been amazing is being able to grow and learn the past few months about what is really helpful to people. So we saw people diving in and we said, hey, okay, we are going to be committed to creating, continuing to create tools and resources that can take this moment to a movement. We didn't want it to be something that just went viral. And then in a few weeks, everyone was back to their normal lives. So we transitioned it from a doc into a website that essentially took it with a few updates um, and put it all in one place, something that could obviously hold the amount of people that w- were visiting the site. And then each month from there, we executed a build upon that. So in July, we partnered with an app called Snap Habit where entirely new resources, we did it more in a weekly modular approach. So every week sought to answer a question and there were uh, content pieces for each day and prompts as well. There were questions for that. So that was like, what does it look like to be black in America, right? Or does, starting off easy, does systemic racism exist in America, right? And and building upon that. And then August, we took the time to step back and dive into more substantial material. And we did a book club that we just opened up to anyone who wanted to join and went through Ijeoma Aluo's so you want to talk about race, which is an amazing book for starters. I learned something and it's very, it's conversational. We believe that conversation is the foundation and it gives anecdotal as well as factual evidence as, as to what exists and how we can combat that. And so now we're working on you know, building out a more robust website that can take into account personalization and where people are on their journey. And I think, you know, Autumn can elaborate a bit more on that. But our goal is to continue to guide people at least to resources 
but also encouraging, okay, do that information and education piece, but then act. Remember that allyship is an active and ongoing practice and lifestyle and should not just be a box you check or a place you arrive to. So important. Yeah, Autumn, uh, can you tell us about like the vision for the next stages? Of course. So Brie and I have never had a problem of being having lots of ideas and seeing how big something can get. So we have uh, spent the last few months trying to sift out all the possible forward avenues because there's lots of them and that's very exciting. But again, we have limited time and resources as well. So we kind of went back to the drawing board and at the end of the day, the thing that was most I think empowering and accessible about the Justice in June format, initially that Google Doc and now the website, is the fact that it it meets you where you're at. Our whole goal is to meet people where they're at in their journey of allyship, whether that's not being able to admit that you have privilege somewhere or that's for the person who is really diving into the school to prison pipeline and that's the area they wanna activate their allyship in the most. And so to address that broad spectrum of where you're at and where you want to go. We want to invest in creating our website so that any person coming to it can get a customized or a tailored learning plan on said topic. So if, again, if you are brand new to the conversation, maybe we can recommend pieces that we've heard back from our different users or uh, people just emailing us saying, I never understood it until I read this thing or until I listened to this podcast and heard this perspective and then I had a light bulb moment. I understood, oh, this is why it matters for me. And we'd like to continually refine that, find even better fits so that the first piece of information you come across on our website or in a learning plan, it's the impactful light bulb moment for you. And that way we can continually nudge people along because again, as Brie mentioned, this is not something, allyship is not something you can just check off. It is an ongoing process and it's a destination that we're gonna be traveling to our whole lives. So we really want our website to be that useful tool. And we're thinking about different ways of trying to reach the people on the fence because again, it's not enough for us just to talk in our friend groups where we all get it, we're all doing this work. We really need to be reaching the people who are either on the fence or who are starting to say, maybe I do have privilege, maybe there is something genuine and real behind Black Lives Matter that I didn't see before. And those are the people we want to make this approachable to. We also are just really motivated by um, empowering people to recognize that they may have a problematic view, but not guilt or shame them. Because guilt and shame are so uh, debilitating. That keeps you paralyzed where you're at, but recognition allows you to move forward. And so we're trying to refine our process of how do we reach people that are maybe on the fence and how do we present information to them with that first interaction so that they are called into the conversation, that they're engaged and they're not shamed. They're just encouraged or empowered to keep going. Yeah, that is that is um such a wise way of I think approaching it, especially because it does entering into this work as a white person, you have to be humble. Um you have to recognize your own white fragility as we all know and I think that um it yeah, there I think there's a lot of internal uh, guilt and shame that kind of that you enter this process of education with. And I have to give you guys extra props because you know, this, you guys are not anti-racism educators as your jobs. Autumn, you are a scientist who's a teacher also right now. And Brianna, you are a, a marketing uh, professional. So 
Um, how does it feel to kind of been have been thrust into the role of educators, especially Bree, you had said that like, you know, it's this is something that you're happy to do, but it's also it's not your responsibility to do it. So how do you how do you guys um, I mean, this is like a new part time job, essentially. So how does that feel for you guys? Yes. So we do have full time, you know, um, jobs and other things as well that we're pouring into but we saw that it was important and that the way we were doing it was keeping people engaged and so it was worth you know putting in the extra effort and what we talk about is also right this is a lot of consumption for some people who have maybe never been aware minimally aware or just chosen not to you know, be active in this sphere. And we understand that with that can come compassion fatigue and can come burnout. And so what we talk about is this analogy of finding your lane, that in the social justice space, there are so many ways that you can contribute and make an effort. And those ways can shift as well. So whether it's donating, showing up to the protest, getting involved with the local organization, right? Doing that internal reflection first and, and diving into getting yourself educated and looking up information, right? Or being that empathetic ally to your friends and your colleagues, right? Creating a safe workspace place and go and so on and so forth. And so when you find your lane and you figure out where you feel the most impactful change that you as an individual can make, you'll become more rejuvenated than you do exhausted. And your journey through this does not have to look the same as the person next to you. And recognizing that is important because even if we're all in different lanes, we should be on the same road heading towards the same goal that to an end destination that is never reached, that we're always striving to get better as we're moving towards it. And so that's how, you know, we maintain that active piece and moving forward and encouraging people to understand that every day is going to look different, that you do have to give yourself some of that grace, but you need to find where you feel the most impactful. And you don't have to change the world, but your contribution, everyone aggregated, that is what will give us a magnanimous shift. Yeah. Autumn, anything to add on that? Yeah. I just want to say that I think for me personally, the best thing about getting to step into a space of even having conversations with different folks has been that active channel to put my frustrations and emotions and just general being overwhelmed with, wow, there's a lot of work to do, but here is one tangible way that I can channel that energy into connecting with people. And um, I think that's what really motivates me, even after working my normal eight to 10 hour day and then coming home and jumping on a couple call conference calls with Brianna and other people we're working with. And then, you know, prepping things last minute until midnight and then repeating that all over again the next day. I have felt just generally overwhelmed by all the different things happening around the world and in our country that I needed an outlet. I needed some way to feel that I was making some difference and engaging with real people, not just talking in theory, not just doing something in my own bubble, or again, with the pandemic, just being limited in who I'm seeing in person. And this was a really cool way to have meaningful conversations. Um, 
even if, you know, even if in the moment it didn't seem very fruitful to me or it didn't seem like I was getting through to another person, there's now been follow-up conversations. There's now been meaningful connections that I've made with people I would never have met if I didn't step into this space or didn't get the opportunity um, to work hard in my full-time job. And then, like Bree said, I am rejuvenated through this work and that has been very good for my mental health and for my well-being is just to have a channel or an outlet despite um despite having a lot of things on my plate it's true i mean it it's hard to not feel very helpless in this moment and we we can talk about that a little bit more in relation to the election in a little bit but to be able to channel that into something active that like you guys have done has got to be very satisfying i know that in in the ways that i'm trying to activate in my own community um, it feels it, it doesn't feel like the work is done. Right. But it does feel like you're contributing and you're moving the ball forward. And whether it's as small as a conversation with somebody or as large as advocating for legislation, um, there's no wrong way of going about the movement if you're or going about the work as long as you're putting in the effort um, in the right ways. So, you know, I do want to talk a little bit about, as you guys know, this podcast is um, aimed at, you know, young people, high school students, college students, um, students who are kind of starting their adult lives um, in the most diverse generation of this country has ever seen. Uh, what are you guys observing as far as, you know, the how this is being received in your generation of students and what kinds of things are, are happening on the ground as you see them? It's really interesting because Autumn and I talk about being in this weird middle land generationally where most of our lives we were referred to as millennials and then Gen Z came along and now there are millennials on the older end of it that are like, you all are Gen Z. And so I'm like, <laughs> that's not how I identify, but okay. I see Gen Z as like my littlest sister who's 14 or 15 actually going on 16 in January, right? And that whole group. And that's who Autumn works with on a day-to-day -day basis, right? So what's interesting is I will say younger millennials especially and the older piece of Gen Z and anyone who's in that fluid area, you see a lot of self-encouraged um, commitment to the information and the education piece. And also because we live in such a digital age, because we are so ingrained with social media, we have other outlets into finding out information. Our parents, the news source, that was it. Newspaper and then eventually TV, those channels, you took it and like that was what the opinions were. And now we have so many other outlets that can bring us that journalism that can bring us nuanced ideas behind what is going on. And so being able to consume that leads to, I think, a, a more varied um, conglomeration of perspectives. And so what I see on my end is a lot of people willing to dive in and then also willing to challenge the generation above us to have those conversations with our parents and our grandparents and encouraging each other right to step into that place of discomfort where that uncle that always says something out of hand at the holidays every year you know instead of just laughing it off now making sure that you are clear that r racism bigotry prejudice and any idea that stems from that is no longer going to go unchecked in your presence and so definitely a lot of that self um encouragement 
but there's also apathy as well. And my littlest sister, my brother, who's just turned 19, they do not believe in the system and they don't trust that that is going to get them to move forward. Yeah. And that's something that I just want to build off a little bit because that to me, this extreme apathy of our general cohort and then extreme activism is confusing um, because it is such opposite ends of the spectrum. And I think part of what I see now being a teacher and now teaching 13 and 14 year olds, seeing them take in all that's happening in their world and, and quite, uh, quite reasonably identifying that, wow, there's a lot of problems and I don't necessarily want to leave the comfort of what I know now, which is fun with my friends, fun with video games, a lot of that, that element of play because that is the one thing that hasn't been too corrupted or infringed by just some of the hate that's going on in our world in a lot of different spheres. And so I think I've seen, now having seen that in the thir my 13 and 14 year old students, I'm like, okay, how do I show them that there is hope, there is meaningful work to do and that work can be more rewarding than just play. Because I think a lot of them say, a lot of them say, well, I don't like school. I'd rather be playing Among Us than watching my remote video lesson and finishing my cations and anions worksheet. I'm like, that's very valid. But doing good work, fulfilling your purpose as a human and finding something that's very rewarding is what I hope to instill in them now because I want them to find the right path after high school or even through high school, depending on if they want to go to college or they want to go straight to work. I want them to see that there is hope and they will have a good future. They can find that meaningful purpose. And so then seeing it there, seeing it with my younger students, I've been reflecting then on my cohort and myself and Brie and I maybe have never struggled with this. And I think part of that's from our background. We're both first generation American citizens. So our fathers are both immigrants. And I, I think inherently off the bat, we have a greater appreciation for being in this country and for our votes and being able to vote because our, our dad sacrificed a lot and have continuously blessed us and given us everything in the world because they wanted us to have every opportunity. That was the point of them uh, uprooting their lives from where they came and moving to the US. So I think inherently we both really appreciate the opportunity to do good work and the opportunity to vote and to engage in making our world a better place. But then on the other hand, we've also been told, and this has caused some friction between myself and my father because his version of the American dream he achieved, which was come to the US, study really hard, get a good job, and then be able to provide for your family. Um, and I think my generation has been told, okay, if you do X, which is graduate from high school, get into a good college, and then you do Y, get a good job, then you'll get Z. You'll get the house, you'll get the nuclear family, you'll have the yard, and you'll live happily ever after as an American. Um, and that's just not the case. <laughs> We, a lot of us, I just graduated this past May and Brie graduated in 2019 and between our two years, I've had friends who have now been laid off because of the pandemic. I've had friends who haven't been able to find work despite being very highly qualified and a, a very competitive candidate. And we're seeing that we're spending all this money, we're spending all this time to do what we've been told will work to get us to this happy future. And then that's not happening. And on top of that, we're seeing the people that told us this. So our parents and older cohorts um, critiquing what we're doing now of just trying to get by. 
And I think that's why some of my friends have chosen to completely shut out or disengage from the political process or from activism because it feels very daunting and it feels very disillusioned when the work is happening but nothing's changing. Or it's like we're putting our blood, sweat, and tears into something and that's just never enough. And so I feel like that is why there's been such a divide between people with extreme motivation because for me seeing that same exact set of circumstances I'm like wow I have work to do I'm, I'm motivated to work but then one of my friends seeing the you know the, the circumstances we're given is just completely turned off they're like there's so much to do I can't do that I might as well try to find some short-term joy or short-term happiness because the future is so unknown and it's looking bleak and I feel like that is part of the motivation between the extreme activism of our generation and the extreme apathy because even yesterday, I texted a friend and asked them if they had turned in um, their ballot or had mailed it in or what they were planning on doing for voting. And they said, oh, well, I'm not voting. And that's just, that's really hard to, to hear. And then to figure out, well, why, where's the root reason that you feel that way? Yeah, you know, it's funny because what I see a lot in the students that I work with is more of that extreme activism side because these students I'm working with have taken a gap year. They're often working on election campaigns. They're working on outreach for various types of social justice and environmental justice organizations. So it's really interesting to think about how do we bring those people along, the, stu the friends that we might have that aren't as active and help engage them. Um, and that kind of, you know, makes me think a lot about what happens after the election. You know, no matter what the outcome is, this work needs to continue. So what are you guys seeing as the path forward to what happens on Thursday and beyond for uh, young people staying active after the election is over? Right. So I would say looking at the election, like it's really important to recognize that one, you need to go into it into the right in the right headspace. You need to take that self-care before so you can be entering that space in a sense of peace, despite whatever the election outcome is, whether in favor or not in favor of what you would like to happen. And then also recognizing that, you know, what happens next week is not the end-all be-all and that your allyship, your activism, it shouldn't stop. And if anything, it should be spurred on to continue to make local community level change because that's really where we can see, you know, communities impacted, right? Your day-to-day -day life is influenced more closely by the local level than it really is by an administration. But there are groups where that is not the case. And so you have to pick up that baton and keep on moving forward. And then also recognizing, right, for those people that are outside of the more active sphere, how can you keep them engaged? Bring them into your journey. Ask questions. That's something that we've really recognized has worked to even understanding the root of why someone may think or feel the way they do so you can figure out where your starting place with that person has to be because it looks different for everyone and being able to figure that out will be will give you a more nuanced way of approaching interrelationship activism but then also activism within the community and i know for me personally thinking about activism post-election i'm not i'm trying not to think of 
the election as like a timeline point or as a big decider in what I'm doing. So I've planned a few events um, for that following weekend, just so I know I already have something planned. I'm going to be continuing on my activism, my contribution to the movement does not have to change going into next week. And I want to plan kind of business as usual, because again, I'm trying to make this habitual and a part of my perspective and the way I walk through life versus a checkbox of, oh, okay, um, I'm no longer racist. So for me, part of that was planning uh, something to look forward to or just to keep me accountable of like, cool, whatever happens, whatever headspace I'm in, this is at least one thing I'm going to do. And then I think it's also important uh, to recognize that you, if you're not being reju- if you're not feeling re-energized by the work you're doing, then you got to find different work. And again, going back to that idea of finding your lane, I know for me, there are certain things that will never energize me or just drain me, even though they are totally valid avenues of activism. They are very draining for me as a person. And so I've had to work That means I can't give up. So after I try one avenue, I'm like, okay, if for me that was protesting and I was like, wow, that was actually really draining and very taxing, that shouldn't be the last thing you do. You should just hop over, turn your blinker on, switch lanes, and try something new. And Brie and I were very fortunate in that the first, one of the first things we tried, it was this using our voice, using our platform, engaging in conversation, but rooted at that education piece. Um, and that ended up being very fulfilling. So I'm, I'm very fortunate that I found a lane early on that is rejuvenating, fulfilling for me. But I think the thing that I'm struggling to do or trying to help my friends do or peers do or other people that reach out is after you've picked the wrong lane, how do you switch into the next one without being disheartened or discouraged? And how do you continue to help people find where they can plug in? Because again, at the end of the day, People want to do good work and they want to feel good about themselves doing that. And that's a very human experience, human desire. So it's, it's so awesome to be able to help someone plug in and be like, oh my gosh, this is where I'm on fire. This is where my skill exactly meets the challenge that I'm working on. And that's just so fulfilling uh, for the human spirit. And so I'm trying to find better ways of either encouraging my friends or since I know them, I know their style, I know what they like or don't like, how can I also help them find that best fit or help them channel their energy into an avenue that allows them to be rejuvenated and refreshed in this movement? Because I've seen friends burn out already and that's that's challenging. I think that that is a great tip to understand that there are different modalities when it comes to activism. I actually once saw a wonderful image at my sister's Unitarian church that I will try and find and put in the show notes, but it talks about, you know, protest as one, uh, education as one, uh, local and civic, you know, politics as one. So there are these different opportunities for people to plug in. And um, I'll try to I'll try to find that so that we can share that kind of image for people to kind of get started. But, you know, Brianna, you kind of touched on it, but we all kind of need to think about our self-care strategies coming into this coming week. And what are you two doing to be kind to yourself uh, as we kind of deal with not just the first week of November, but potentially the whole month of November and onward (laughs) as we come into the wintertime? Yeah, I think building off of what Autumn said about, you know, not looking at the election as part of this timeline right, where something begins or ends, I am going into it and really preparing myself over the next few days of 
how, what state am I entering this in? Um, you know, Autumn and I are both strong women of faith. And so I answer to a higher authority and that is where I'm rooting myself in that whoever is in that office, that shouldn't change how I'm going to impact the world in my day to day and how I'm going to treat people and how I'm going to love people and how I'm going to try and conquer the divisive atmosphere we're in. And then also recognizing that I cannot say yes to everyone and everything after whatever takes place because I need to be in tune with where I'm at and it I know already that it's going to be hard to show up in certain ways or it's going to be challenging to show up in certain ways and so I need to constantly be doing temperature checks with myself but then I also need to be checking in on the people that I care about and making sure that you know especially with those that maybe are slightly younger than me or my siblings right of how do you feel how can we come together and encourage some type of positive I think mental space for ourselves and I I journal where I can you know I take time away I adjust what music I'm listening to what media I'm consuming and I very much will likely unplug from social media a bit um, you know depending on how things go and just take time to not let that feed into what creates my space of joy or, you know, let it feed into negativity and really creating a neutral zone where I can process and I can go through all the emotions and then I can pick everything back up again and keep on fighting the fight. And Bree will know this uh, very common answer that I always give to things that I'm going through because she witnessed it with us being roommates. I compartmentalize my emotions a lot um which is just a coping mechanism that works for me but often what I will do is when I have had something that's very disappointing or very distressing happen I go through what I call a pity party where I set an amount of time that I'm going to be in all my fields and be like woe is me and be sad and have outside tears so my other friend used to joke that I never showed outside tears I'd always just cry on the inside and so now I will have outside tears I will be very emotional, but then once my pity party has ended, um, then, like Bree said, I just pick up the baton and I keep on going. And for me, that's very effective. I like knowing that I can have that moment to acknowledge and recognize, hey, I'm feeling this kind of way, and then I can move on. So sometimes it's hard because you get stuck in the in the feelings and in feeling that you can't do something or that you're just there's things are so rough. But moving on or at least setting the time for me was always helpful because I'm like, okay, it often would coincide with the start of a new day. So I would wake up and be like, all right, cool. Uh, I'm done feeling sad about that. I'm done feeling mad about that. And I'm ready to do whatever I need to do to start feeling good about the future or the next thing. And in addition to that, I, for myself, have always struggled with being vulnerable about things that are very personal or just things that I'm struggling with. It's very easy for me to be open about, I mean, I think this is probably for everyone. It's very easy to be open about things that are going well or, um, you know, silly things or when you make light of something that is a problem in your life, but it's not a serious one. And recently I've had to work against my incorrect belief that me being open or vulnerable would somehow make me be weak or would allow people to attack me easier. And in fact, the complete opposite has happened. The more I've shared, I'm actually struggling with this or um, that I had to cry about something or that I did have to have a pity party with others, with my friends or with my um, 
my community, the better I felt from that. So for example, I think something I'm going to plan on doing is scheduling a call with, uh, I call it my inner circle friends. These are people that speak truth into my life and that I trust completely um, to give me critique or to say like, hey, we're worried about you or hey, uh, you're amazing. We're going to gas you up. These are my inner circle people. So some of them, we are all friends and um, like after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, I was just, I was really distraught for not only being a woman, but just for the, the state of our nation and going forward, who would fill that seat. And so I just messaged all those friends and we got, we hopped on a call about an hour later and objectively nothing changed about that night besides us sharing and crying together and saying like what we're worried about, but just acknowledging it with people I love and trust was so powerful in how I was able to, to think about her passing and move on the next day. And I'm really glad that I did that because normally I wouldn't have reached out to instigate like a, hey, I need to talk to you right now. I'm really struggling. And I did that night. Um, and I think I, I need to do that more often because it was so cathartic, even though objectively nothing about my situation had changed. And so post-election, um, my plan is to build in calls with people that will force me to be open or force me to try to have some of that vulnerability and invite them to just share that space with me because objectively nothing will change. Whoever is voted in will be voted in for the next four years, but acknowledging however we feel about that or acknowledging there are other people feeling the same way you do is super powerful, definitely for me, but I think for others in maintaining my wellness or being able to go forward and even think about it without breaking down or crying or, or, being sidetracked in the work that you need to do. Yeah, those are all um, really healthy strategies, both of you. So well done. I'm going to include those in our show notes as well. I think that we all need kind of a menu of different ways that we might cope with this next period of time. I know for me, um, I've got a socially distanced dance party coming up in November. It's like the middle of November because yes. um, even in a normal year, Vermont is kind of hard in November to get through because it's kind of dreary and cold and whatever. So I've got a dance party coming up. Um, I've also been in a complete media blackout for the last uh, 10 days. And it, I kind of put a two week um, uh, bubble around the election time. Um, and that is I feel a little bit guilty about it because I am usually a hyper informed person. But I have to say that I, I'm not not active. You know, I'm still phone banking. I'm still getting out the vote and those kinds of things. But not paying attention to the noise and the stress of what I can't control has been um, a bit of a release for me. And so that's been that's, that's been one of my coping strategies. So um, it's working so far. Uh, so for all um, that we have behind us and in front of us, this has been such an amazing conversation. So thank you both to jo for joining us on the pod. And thanks to everyone out there for listening. Um, you can find Justice in June online at justiceinjune.org, on Twitter and on Instagram at Justice in June. And uh, ladies, is there are you guys still fundraising? Is there a way to help support you financially as you continue to to build out resources for people? We are still not as active as before. We do have a GoFundMe page and we've already raised so much money and we really appreciate the monetary contribution and we are being very intentional with how that will eventually be used. So if anyone is inclined, they're more than welcome to go visit our GoFundMe uh, which is accessible via our website and the donate button. But 
we just want you to keep showing up and keep acting and keep learning and unlearning. And that is what matters to us most. Perfect. Just so you all know, you can find Gap Your Radio on Instagram and Facebook at Gap Your Radio or online at gapyourradiopodcast.com. You can email us your Gap Your questions or comments at gapyourradio at gmail.com. And as we mentioned last week, if you have Gap Your planning questions, please email us a voice memo of your question and we're going to use it in an upcoming episode. So again, you can email a voice memo of your Gap Your planning question to gapyourradio at gmail.com. And lastly, you can download the show wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And please, if you have a moment, we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts so more people can discover Gap Your Radio. So ladies, normally we end the podcast by asking people to sign off in a foreign language. It kind of usually has to do with where they spent the gap time. I think that maybe for the three of us, we should just say uh, on the count of three, go vote. <laughs> I think that's probably the parting message that we all need to, to put out there. Would you guys agree? I like, I like yes, it. Okay. It. So one, two, three, go, go vote. vote. <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>